Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, last week had a very long section on the Civil War, and we're going to continue with that period but some other context around it. So let's get started. National Self-Determination and the Reconstitution of Empire Between October 1917 and the end of 1918, some 13 new states came into existence in what had been the Russian Empire. Finland, Transcaucasia, the Baltic provinces, and the western borderlands, including Ukraine, seceded, and Russia quickly retreated to the frontiers she had enjoyed before the time of Peter the Great. Footnote 46. Power passed in the non-Russian borderlands to sections of the nationalist intelligentsia, but did so partially by default. This was not an empire brought to its knees by powerful national liberation struggles. Most nationalist movements did not have a strong popular base, and most were weakened by internal political conflicts, especially regarding land redistribution which threatened land-owning interests. Some nationalist movements were torn between the Reds and Whites, and many turned on the Central Powers or the Allies for support. Ultimately, the Bolsheviks would take advantage of the weakness and division to reintegrate the bulk of the territories of the former empire into a Soviet Union. This raises an obvious question about the sincerity of the Bolshevik commitment to national self-determination. The Declaration of the Rights of the Peoples of Russia, issued on the 2nd of November 1917, abolished all restrictions on nationalities and religions, and asserted the right of the peoples of Russia to self-determination, including the right to secede from the Russian polity. Prior to 1914, Lenin's intransigent rejection of Great Russian Chauvinism and support for national self-determination had probably made him the leader in the pre-1914 socialist movement most sympathetic to the aspirations of oppressed nations. For him, international working-class solidarity could only be built on the free, voluntary union of different peoples. The Declaration of the Rights of the Toiling and Exploited People on the 3rd of January 1918 defined the new state as a Federation of Soviet National Republics. Yet it soon became clear that there was little agreement in the Bolshevik party about the relationship of national self-determination to class struggle. At the Third Congress of Soviets on the 15th of January 1918, Stalin, who had been made Commissar of Nationalities in December, pointed to the ongoing conflict with the Ukrainian Rada and baldly stated that, quote, the principle of self-determination must be a means of struggle for socialism and must be subordinated to the principles of socialism. End quote. A huge range of opinion on the question was reflected at the Congress. Evgeny Preobrazhensky, representing the left wing of the Bolshevik party, took a harder line than Stalin, arguing that nationalism could only be supported when it was directed against imperialism and that in Soviet Russia, it must be struggled against mercilessly, since it was being used by bourgeois forces to undermine socialism. The right SR, Elbovich Davidovich, castigated Stalin for a speech that was saturated with the politics of centralism, 
arguing that the Austrian Social Democrats had tried and failed to subordinate national self-determination to class struggle. For his part, the anarcho-communist Guy demanded class determination, not national self-determination. While for the Menshevik internationalists, Martov insisted that one could not dictate in advance that national minorities choose a Soviet form of government. Footnote 47. All these views, including those of non-Bolsheviks, would influence party policy during the Civil War. The Bolsheviks recognized the independence of Finland, but were less willing to recognize that of the three Baltic states, not least because there were movements across the Baltic region, of varying strength, in support of Soviet power. In Latvia, in particular, the Bolsheviks enjoyed considerable support in the working class. By February 1918, the Germans had occupied the whole of the territory and helped set up a nationalist government. At the end of 1918, the Red Army retook the country and installed Piteris Struka, a prominent jurist and educator, as head of a Latvian Soviet Republic. Despite having been a member of the Latvian New Current Movement in the late 19th century, he showed little sympathy towards nationalist aspiration, and his ultra-left policy of collectivizing land angered the rural population. In May 1919, German forces, allied by the Allies to remain in the Baltic to help clear it of Reds, spearheaded the storming of Riga. This subsequently led to the restoration of a nationalist government under Carlos Ulmanis. In Estonia, where Soviets ran many towns in 1918, Bolshevik indifference to nationalist sentiment, combined with their failure to expropriate the Baltic barons and their hostility to other parties, strengthened support for the nationalist assembly, the Ma Paev. When the Red Army tried to invade in early 1919, the forces of the Ma Paev, with assistance from whites, British naval units, and Finnish volunteers, repelled them. In June 1919, a conflict flared up between German and Estonian forces, which was quelled by British troops, keen to see German forces swept from the Baltic now that the Treaty of Versailles was signed. In February 1920, Soviet Russia recognized Estonia's independence, and in August 1920, the independence of Latvia, including its acquisition of the Lotgale area. In Belarusia and Lithuania, the armistice with Germany left a power vacuum, in which Poles and Reds vied for control of a borderland where the population was neither predominantly Belarusian nor Lithuanian, and had a strong admixture of Poles and Jews. In February 1918, the nationalist Teriba proclaimed a state of Lithuania with its capital at Vilnius in eternal and strong association with Germany. The new state envisaged incorporation of most of the former Russian provinces of Vilna, Kaunas, Grodno, and Suwalki, an area in which Poles formed a strong minority. Its existence was imperiled first by the invasion of the Red Army in January 1919, and then by that of the West Russian Volunteer Army, a white Russian force backed by German Freikorps, who had no intention of leaving the Baltic. In September 1919. In Belarusia, the occupation by German troops during the Brest-Litovsk negotiations allowed the creation of a national government, but the peasantry, in contrast to its Ukrainian counterpart, lacked national consciousness, 
and once the Germans withdrew, the government fell. On the 1st of January 1919, the Red Army set up a Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, but the western provinces of Mogilev, Smolensk, and Vitebsk refused to be part of it. In March 1919, it was merged with Lithuania to form the Litvel Soviet Republic. In April, with the Polish-Soviet War underway, Poland occupied Vilnius, reinstated landowners, and made Polish the official language. Lithuanian nationalists, installed in the Kaunas, although lacking a mass base, managed to take advantage of the war to declare an independent Lithuanian state, albeit within much reduced borders. In Belarusia, the Red Army retook Minsk from the Poles in July 1920, but Belarusia continued to be a zone of conflict between the Poles and the Soviets until October, when a Belarusian Soviet Republic was formed. Footnote 48. If the Bolsheviks could live with the loss of many parts of the former empire, the secession of Ukraine was something they could not easily contemplate, since it was hard to envisage a viable Soviet regime that was deprived of access to the immense cereal resources and mining and metallurgical industries of what many Bolsheviks considered South Russia. In Ukraine today, historians argue that great Russian chauvinism colored the whole of Bolshevik policy towards Ukraine in this period, but it should be noted that some of the most implacable opponents of Ukrainian autonomy were themselves Ukrainian. After October, faced by red forces bent on setting up a Soviet government in Kharkiv in the east, the Rada turned to Germany for help. The Reichswehr pushed out the Reds, but then proceeded to dissolve the moderate socialist Rada and impose a hetmanate under Skoropadsky. Following the withdrawal of Germany, a largely peasant army swept Petliura into power, allowing him to set up a directory in Kiev. Its record was unimpressive. Squeezed between Reds to the north and the volunteer army to the south, weakened by personal and political rivalries, the Directory was driven out of Kiev on the 4th of February 1919 by the Red Army. Petliura fled to Vinitsa, where he formed a more right-wing regime purged of social democrats and socialist revolutionaries. The second Soviet government from February to August 1919 revealed just how hostile many leftist Bolsheviks were towards Ukrainian national aspirations and a disastrous campaign of russification deepened splits within the feeble Ukrainian Communist Party. By May 1919, Ukraine was in turmoil. Villages turned in upon themselves out of self-protection, while armed peasant bands roamed the countryside, led by warlords who fought for control of territory in the name of the peasant revolution. Unable to get a grip on the chaotic situation, the Soviet government was toppled by Denikin, which allowed Petlyura once again to resume power. However, divisions within nationalist ranks were widening. Those in eastern Galicia, historically part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, had joined a united Ukraine in 1919, but then opted to support the Whites rather than the Poles, with whom Petlyura had made a deal. By June 1920, as a consequence of the Russo-Polish War, a third Soviet government gained full control of Ukraine. 
Thanks to Lenin's intervention in December 1919, Russian chauvinists had been removed from the leadership of the Ukrainian party, and the absorption of the Borat Bisti, a left-wing splinter from the Ukrainian SRs, finally gave the party cadres who could speak Ukrainian, and who had some understanding of the needs of the peasantry. No fewer than nine different governments came and went in the space of three years in Ukraine, testifying to the inability of any one political force to take decisive control. Caught between reds and whites, the various nationalist administrations were forced to seek protection from Germany, the Entente, or Poland. Themselves torn by division and increasingly at odds with an insurgent peasantry, nationalists by 1920 could be under no illusions about their fundamental weakness. Yet, the experience of independent statehood, however brief and conditional, strengthened identification with the Ukrainian nation, especially on the part of the peasantry. The Bolsheviks gained Ukraine by military, not political means, as a result of three major campaigns and their claims to offer self-determination proved distinctly hollow until 1920, when the Ukrainian Communist Party finally learned some unpalatable lessons. Yet more radical nationalists, recognizing that in a less-than-ideal world, they must defer to one superior force or another, opted in the end for the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, since that alone offered a genuine degree of political autonomy however much it was ultimately on Moscow's terms. This set a pattern that was replicated elsewhere. Ukraine was the region of the former empire with the heaviest concentration of Jews, some 9% of the population. They chiefly comprised artisans, traders, tavern keepers, and estate managers. Relations between Jews and the Ukrainian peasantry were laden with tension. Although the Rada offered Jews personal national autonomy, Jews were unenthusiastic about independence, fearing that Ukrainian separatism would split the Jewish community of the former empire, interrupt trade with Russia, and foment prejudice. Jews would suffer massively as civil war whipped up anti-Semitism. In 1903, Lenin had declared that, quote, the idea of a Jewish nationality runs counter to the interests of the Jewish proletariat, and assimilated Jews in the Bolshevik leadership, such as Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Sverdlov, shared his... Oh. And assimilated Jews in the Bolshevik leadership, such as Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Sverdlov, shared his animus against Zionism and separate organization of Jewish workers. Nevertheless, amid an intensifying climate of anti-Semitism, the party agreed in January 1918 to the creation of a Jewish commissariat and later to Jewish sections within the party. Formerly barred from public office and on average more literate than the Russian population, Jews were overrepresented in the Soviet party and Cheka and it was their new public visibility that helped to inflame anti-Jewish hostility. The Civil War inspired a massacre of Jews on a ghastly, historically unprecedented scale, with the loss of between 50 and 200,000 lives. Another 200,000 Jews were injured, and thousands of women were raped. 
Some in the local Soviets were even boiled alive. Quote, communist soup. Most of the perpetrators were soldiers of Petlura's armies, whites, or camp followers of the various warlords. Footnote 49. Red army soldiers, notably Budenyi's cavalrymen, were certainly responsible for some pogroms, but the generally better record of the Red Army was a key reason why many in the Bund and the other Jewish socialist parties came over to the Bolsheviks. Cossacks, as the backbone of the white forces, failed to make the transition from being a social estate to becoming an ethnically defined group. Following the Bolshevik seizure of power, the volunteer army looked to create a social base among the Cossacks, principally among those of the Don and Kuban, the two largest of the eleven Cossack hosts. The ruthlessness of the Red Forces, which invaded the Don in spring 1918, and the increasingly bitter war over the land between Cossacks and peasant incomers, strengthened Cossack allegiance to the anti-Bolshevik camp. However, Cossack society had become differentiated socially, and one-fifth of all Cossacks under arms actually fought with the Reds. Nevertheless, by summer 1918, 50,000 Cossacks had answered the call to arms from Ataman Krasnov, who was now committed to complete independence. The Bolsheviks were absolutely unwilling to make any concession to Cossack autonomy. In their eyes, the Cossacks were not a nation in the making, but a superannuated estate, economically privileged by virtue of their military service to the old regime. The conflict in the Don region was ferocious. Nevertheless, it is noteworthy that much of the violence perpetrated by Krasnov while he was in control of the Don from May 1918 to February 1919 was targeted at fellow Cossacks. Estimates of the number killed range from 25 to 45,000. Footnote 50. Indeed, it was rebellion within his own ranks that enabled the Reds to re-enter the territory in January 1919. Any shift in sentiment towards the Reds, however, was soon snuffed out by the chilling order of the 24th of January, quote, to carry out mass terror against wealthy Cossacks, eliminating them to a man, and to conduct merciless mass terror in relation to all Cossacks who have participated directly or indirectly in the struggle against Soviet power, end quote. Several thousand were slaughtered, and the terror provoked an uprising by some 15,000 in March. The Bolsheviks quickly withdrew the order, but too late to prevent the Red Army from being swept out of the Don region in June. Footnote 51. Following their military defeat, the Cossacks were deprived of the right to political autonomy, and tens of thousands were forcibly deported to Kazakhstan, the Urals, and Ukraine. The collapse of the Caucasian Front at the end of 1917 undermined tenuous Bolshevik support in that region. In November, a Transcaucasian Sejm parliament was set up in Tbilisi, headed by the former chair of the Petrograd Soviet, Shays, based mainly on the Georgian Mensheviks and the Musavat, the moderate Azerbaijani Muslim party. The declaration of independence by the Sejm on the 10th of February 1918 gained only lukewarm support from the SRs and the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the Dashnaksutyan, 
who were alarmed at the rapid advance of Ottoman forces into the Caucasus and felt that their best protection lay in preserving the alliance with Russia. In Baku, the sole outpost of Soviet power, Bolsheviks and Dashnaks joined forces in March 1918 to defend the Soviet against the Musavat, slaughtering several thousand Muslims. When the Turks finally seized Baku in September, Azerbaijanis took revenge, massacring 10,000 Armenians. British forces fled the city. The Georgians turned to Germany for protection, offering substantial economic and political concessions in return for recognition. At the last meeting of the same in 26th of May 1918, Sir Atelli declared Transcaucasian unity a fiction, and its three constituent peoples formed independent republics. Independent Azerbaijan proved politically unstable from the first. Nationalist politicians who had little support from the peasantry, whose supra-local identity was with the universal community of Islam, and in Baku, nationalist sentiment took second place to class sentiment. Isolation from Russian and foreign markets caused a fall in oil revenues, which led to high unemployment and rocketing inflation. Following the defeat of Turkey in the First World War, the Azerbaijani government looked to the British for protection, and once the latter withdrew from Transcaucasia in August 1919, it was left vulnerable. For its part, independent Armenia began its existence in a catastrophic condition, confined to a small landlocked territory around Erevan, which was contested by all its neighbours. It faced an inundation of refugees, and a population wracked by starvation and disease. The Dashnak government dropped its pretensions to socialism and formed a government of national emergency. Georgia proved to be the most viable of the three Caucasian states. In parliamentary elections in February 1919, the Mensheviks won 80% of the vote. Despite facing fearsome economic problems, the government oversaw the formation of trades unions, cooperatives, and industrial arbitration courts, and carried out a moderately successful land reform. The chief blot on its record lay in the brutality with which the Georgian National Guard treated ethnic minorities within its borders. Again, it relied on the protection of the British, who were keen to maintain control of the oil pipelines, and British withdrawal left independent Georgia vulnerable to a Soviet takeover. The Bolsheviks were determined to regain Transcaucasia, not least because of its petroleum and mineral resources, and to counter British intervention. In late 1919, an Azerbaijani Communist Party was formed, and the Caucasus Regional Committee, led by S.M. Kirov, funneled millions of rubles into the region. In April 1920, an overwhelmingly Russian army invaded Azerbaijan. In Armenia, Turkey retook territory ceded to Armenia by the Treaty of Sevres, which ended the war between the Allies and the Ottoman Empire. After failing to gain support from the Allies, the Dashnak leaders turned to the Bolsheviks. But within days of the Red Army's arrival, they were expelled from the government. In May 1920, the Bolsheviks recognized the independence of Georgia, but Sergo or Jonikids, 
backed by Stalin, pressed for the overthrow of the Menshevik government. Defying orders from Moscow not to self-determine Georgia, the Red Army marched into the country in January 1921. Throughout Transcaucasia, civil war, economic collapse, and inter-ethnic conflict undermined moderate socialism and nullified moves to multinational cooperation. All three states came into existence at a time when their sovereignty was rocked by internecine disputes over territory, and all looked to the protection of stronger powers, whether the Turks, the Germans, the British, or Soviet Russia. Unable to withstand external pressure, many nationalists in Azerbaijan and Armenia came in 1920 to see the formation of their own Soviet autonomies as the least bad option for national self-determination. On the 24th of November 1917, the Bolsheviks invited Muslims to order their national life freely and without hindrance. A year later, they set up a central bureau of Muslim communist organizations to carry a revolution to the Muslim peoples of the former empire. In the course of 1917, Jadidist intellectuals had faced mounting opposition to their program of reform from the conservative mullahs and, following the October Revolution, many looked to achieve national salvation through popular mobilization. The publication by the Bolsheviks of the secret treaties between Russia and the Allies served to shift their politics from liberal constitutionalism to anti-imperialism. Footnote 52. Nationalist sentiment was fluid with respect to the desired form of political autonomy. Most Jadids envisaged a single Turkic Muslim nation based on a large swath of territory in Turkestan and Bukhara. Such pan-Turkism was most developed among the Volga Tatar intellectuals, merchants and mullahs, the most wealthy, educated and urbanized of the empire's Muslim communities. A pan-Turkic state under Tatar dominance, however, was not to the liking of the Bashkirs in the Urals, and in Central Asia, pan-Turkism did not appeal to Persian-speaking peoples and nomadic groups, such as the Turkmen, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, or Karakal Pak, but it was Tatar Jadids, such as Merced Sultan Galiev and Mulaner Vakitov, shot by the Czechs in August 1918 who were the most sophisticated nationalists among the Muslim populations. Faced with a barely existent proletariat and a semi-nomadic populace, they formed a Muslim Red Army, with a view to creating a Tatar-Bashkir state, stretching from the mid-Volga to the Urals. In July 1918, its 50,000 members were incorporated into the Red Army, these Muslim units, in which soldiers were taught to read in Tatar, were seen as proof of Bolshevik commitment to self-determination. Everywhere in the Muslim areas, Russian settlers were at the forefront of establishing Soviet power, and they evinced a classically colonialist attitude towards the indigenous population. In February 1918, for example, the Kazan Soviet crushed efforts by moderate nationalists to form a Tatar-Bashkir state. In Turkestan, in particular, racism ran rampant. In the Fergana Valley, following the Bolshevik seizure of power, the Jadadist Shura-e-Islam and the conservative clerical Ulama Jamiati 
formed a Turkestan Autonomous Government in Kokand, but the Russian-dominated Turkestan Council of People's Commissars in Tashkent refused to recognize it. On the 5th of February, 1918, the council sent red forces to Kokand, where the moderate government was resisting Soviet power, and put the city to the torch, slaughtering almost 60% of the population. Elsewhere, in the Fergana Valley, armed Russian settlers terrorized the natives. In late April, an alarmed Moscow sent P.A. Kobozev to form a Turkestan Autonomous Socialist Republic, which, though Russian-dominated, included 10 liberal or radical Muslims. Yet, the policies pursued by the Autonomous Republic of seizing land belonging to religious endowments, Wakf, and closing religious schools and Sharia courts did little to win the support of the native population. Footnote 53. Among the Bashkirs in the Urals was a small nationalist movement had emerged in 1917 led by a young scholar and moderate socialist, Ahmed Zeki Velidov. This aspired to differentiate Bashkirs ethnically from their close Tatar neighbors by stressing their nomadic past and their former status as a Cossack host. These Bashkir nationalists resented the move by the Soviets in March 1918 to set up a Tatar-Bashkir Soviet Republic, a preemptive move designed to thwart an attempt by anti-Bolshevik forces to set up a Volga oral state. In reaction, they allied with the Orenburg Cossacks, and later with the Democratic Counter-Revolution. Following Kolchak's abolition of Bashkir territorial autonomy, however, Validov and his men came to an agreement with the Bolsheviks, and in March 1919 were granted a Bashkir Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, ASSR, the first such award by the Bolsheviks of autonomy on the basis of a clearly defined territory. By June 1920, however, in disgust at the continuing interference by Russian settlers and Red Army soldiers in Bashkir self-government, Validov went off and joined the guerrillas, Basmachi. Footnote 54. In the Kazakh steppes, the Jadids who led the nationalist Alash Orda, who was close in its policies to the cadets, proclaimed Kazakh autonomy in December 1917 in Orenburg, which was also the center of Bashkir nationalism. The Red Army's advance along the Orenburg-Tashkent Railway caused the Alash to split between a western group in Orenburg, who allied with anti-Bolshevik Bashkirs, and an eastern group, who eventually joined up with Kolchak's forces in Omsk. By spring 1919, however, Kolchak's hostility to nationalist aspirations swung Alash Orda towards a compromise with the Bolsheviks. In March 1920, the Kyrgyz, i.e. Kazakh, Revolutionary Committee dismantled the Alash Orda government and in August, a Kazakh ASSR, confusingly named Kyrgyz, was formed, in which Alash Orda leaders were influential. This gave Kazakhs their own political community for the first time, and clan and village structures were reconfigured in the guise of Soviets. In 1925, it was renamed the Kazakh ASSR. As this suggests, as the Red Army began to gain the upper hand in the Civil War, 
the Bolsheviks could afford to be more accommodating towards nationalist movements. This, together with the dispiriting experience of white policies, pushed many Muslim nationalists back towards the Reds. In Crimea, the left wing of Mili Furka, the Muslim nationalist grouping, joined the Communist Party, and after Wrangel's exodus and the Cheka's extermination of political opponents, a Crimean Tatar ASSR was proclaimed in October 1921. Meanwhile, among the Tatars of the Middle Volga, an ASSR was formed in May 1920, though some three quarters of Tatars in the region were outside its borders. The supporters of Sultan Galiev, who formed the core of the Tatarstan Communist Party, emerged as the most adept exponents of national communism. This combined Jadidist opposition to conservative clerical forces, a desire for modernity, and Leninist anti-imperialism. Galiev argued that Muslim society, not yet being class divided, occupied a position analogous to that of the proletariat, thus subtly eliding the concepts of an oppressed class and an oppressed nation. His concept of the nation playing on the familiar Islamic concept of Ummah, or Commonwealth of Believers. Commenting on his speech to the Second Congress of Peoples of the East in December 1919, the Journal of the Commissariat of Nationalities noted disapprovingly, quote, The impression was created that comrades might be proposing the East was virgin land more receptive to the ideas of communism than the decadent West. End quote. Footnote 55. Despite the whiff of heresy that clung to them, national communists succeeded for a while in abrogating the legislation confiscating waqf lands, closing religious schools, and abolishing sharia courts. By 1923, however, Stalin felt strong enough to bring them to heel, and Sultan Galiev was thrown into jail. Trotsky would later repent of the fact that he played an inglorious part in securing this outcome. Footnote 56. In Turkestan, as the civil war drew to a close, the situation remained fraught. By 1919, in the Fergana Valley, more than 20,000 natives had joined a surging guerrilla movement, known as Basmachi, in response to the abuses of Russian settlers. The unpopular policies of the Moscow-backed Turkestan Autonomous Socialist Republic were tempered when Turar Riskolov, scion of a Kazakh aristocratic family, was installed as its head in July 1920. However, the sovereignty of the republic was compromised when Moscow placed the task of quelling the Basmachi in the hands of a Turkestan commission, which was accountable directly to the Council of People's Commissars in Moscow. The situation in Turkestan was further complicated by the continuing existence of the emirates of Kiva, Bukhara, and Kokand. In September 1920, Red Army forces under Frunz expelled the Emir of Bukhara, which gave a further boost to the guerrilla movement. The latter soon acquired an Islamist coloration, partly under Sufi influence. Meanwhile, the Khwarezm, Kiva and Bukhara People's Republics were established, which were not called socialist, in view of their pre-industrial economies. By 1921, the Red Army appeared to be gaining the upper hand over the guerrillas, but the movement was revitalized in November 1921, when former Ottoman War Minister Envar Pasa, 
architect of the Armenian Genocide, after a brief dalliance with the Bolsheviks, joined it. By late 1923, the guerrillas in Fergana had been pacified, but it was two more years before the Basmachi strongholds in Bukhara were smashed. A further complicating factor was the struggle between those, like Riskolov, who favoured a pan-Turkic solution to the national question, and those who wished to see the vast territory of Turkestan divided into ethnically-based territorial states. The latter won out, and in 1924, the Turkestan ASSR was divided into the Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republics of Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, and the Autonomous Republics of Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. In November 1917, it looked as though the Russian Empire was destined to go the way of its Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman counterparts. Yet, by 1922, the Bolsheviks had reconquered most of the former Tsarist Empire, the Soviet state being shorn of 818,000 square kilometers, 3.7% of pre-war territory and 31 to 32 million people. The logic of Soviet expansion, however, had been determined not by the dynamic of international revolution, but by the contingencies of war and by the wider geopolitical and security considerations that had governed the growth of the Tsarist state. Following the largely peaceful takeover of Azerbaijan by the Red Army on the 28th of April 1920, Lenin wrote, quote, the Baku proletariat has taken power in its hands and overthrown the Azerbaijani government. End quote. In fact, everywhere it was the army, not the proletariat, which served as the agent carrying the revolution forward. Something Lenin tacitly recognized when he supported intervention in Persia, or plans to capture Constantinople in 1921. This, however, did not make the Bolsheviks old style imperialists. Despite the racism of Russian settlers in the borderlands, who were the mainstay of Soviets in the large urban centers, internationalism was at the heart of Soviet policy in this period, and it is impossible to explain the energy with which the government established alliances with national movements if one assumes that its objective was simply to re-establish a Russian empire. It is true that self-determination for non-Russian minorities was a policy objective that took second place to the practical exigencies of suppressing anti-Bolshevik movements, ensuring the operational effectiveness of the Red Army, or securing food. Moreover, hostility to self-determination in some sections of the party, along with the ability of local actors to thwart the best-laid plans of the center, meant that policy on national self-determination was subject to improvisation and to sharp changes of tack. Haphazardly, however, Moscow succeeded in restructuring the former empire as a federation of Soviet republics constituted along ethno-nationalist lines, each with its own territory, starting with the Bashkir ASSR in February 1919. For the Bolshevik leadership, such a system came to seem the optimal means of reconciling the centrifugal impulses of nationalism with the centralizing impulse of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Overall, the civil war had intensified nationalist sentiment, yet it had also deepened divisions within nationalist ranks. 
There were huge differences in the degree of socio-economic development of the different non-Russian areas, and thus in the degree to which they were amenable to class or nationalist politics. Nationalist movements generally lacked solid popular support, although there were exceptions, such as Georgia, and were forced to compete with political movements that appealed to class. Even in Ukraine, where a majority of the population by 1920 regarded themselves as Ukrainian, national identity proved incapable of transcending class divisions. Recognizing their weakness, nationalist movements turned at times to the Reds or Whites, to the Allies or to Germany, to Turkey or to Poland. This surrender to superior force further exacerbated political divisions within nationalist ranks. Despite egregious instances of Russian chauvinism practiced by Bolsheviks on the ground, and despite the fact that class self-determination always counted for more than national self-determination, it is fair to say that by the end of the Civil War, the Bolsheviks offered nationalists far more than was on offer from their adversaries, even if this was less than many would have liked. Although it is worth remembering that in 1917, few nationalists had aspired to complete national independence. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be continuing on with more sections from this chapter next week that will be not quite so long. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.